You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We're a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. Thank you, Dave. Our second scripture lesson comes from Mark. Um, if you didn't realize that this uh, year in the liturgical calendar uses Mark, um, and we're working our way through the story. Um, so this is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Um, hear now the word of our Lord. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. And they said, where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom that he's been given? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not these his sisters that are here with us? They took offense to him. And then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. He could not... Uh, He could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And then he went about among the villagers teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, just shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So now I'm going to say, thanks be to our still speaking God, and you respond. Thanks be to God. All right. All right, so the Bible says, now that's quite a heavy phrase, the Bible says. Haven't you heard this phrase before? I know I have, and I guess I've used it too, probably. And to be honest, When I'm not the one using it, I usually get ready when I hear it because I'm sure I'm not going to like what comes next. On that day in the text that we just read, Jesus began to preach in the synagogue and I wonder, I wonder what he said that caused such a commotion. I wonder what he was doing that caused people such panic, such a problem. I wonder if he began his sermon with the phrase, well, the Bible says such and such. Well, whatever he said, the crowd responded, where did he get all of this? Where did his wisdom come from? My guess is that the one thing that made Jesus so wise was his unique relationship to the sacred scriptures. In my own holy imagination, I think Jesus approached it with honesty. He expected that he needed to have to wrestle with it, that he would have to find a way to address the needs of the people in their own moment, and that he would read scripture accordingly. From how the Gospels portray Jesus' use of Scripture, we can infer a few things about Jesus. 
that he was able to wrestle with the text, even that he left out portions of it on purpose in order to fit his own agenda. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll about the day of the Lord's favor. But if you read carefully, you realize Jesus completely skipped over the portion about God's vengeance. Today, we might say Jesus was a little disingenuous. Was he cherry-picking? Was Jesus ignoring what the Bible had to say? When this phrase, the Bible says so, is used, we all know it. We've said it. We've taught it. Maybe we've had it repeated to us. Maybe we even sing it. You know, the Bible tells me so, right? The phrase, though, it gives the impression that the Bible is easy to read, that it's clear, that it's unequivocal or univocally it expresses a unified perspective on a particular issue. But I have news for you today, church. The Bible is not easy to read. It's often not very clear. It contains many voices that express diverse perspectives on any number of issues, and most of the time it has nothing at all to do with the issues we wish it dealt with. It's important for people of faith to know that and for us to name it. Like me, I'm sure you've encountered those folks who have memorized portions of the Bible and can quickly quote specific verses to support their opinion about some specific issue or position that they take. Often, however, when you get down to it, most of those folks haven't really read much of the books they're quoting from. They're bold, though, and they find comfort in the belief that their opinions are, quote, biblical. They leave the rest of us, though, with few options. Most of us, we just clam up because we're incapable of providing a well-thought-out response. Raise your hand if that's true. Right? But some of us, some of us, though, we don't, we don't get into it. We don't let it get to us. We're capable of ignoring these kind of encounters. But then when we get back and we think about it, we're still uneasy about our own relationships with the Bible. We wish we knew it better. Others of us, especially those of us, have been at the blunt end of the violence done by misusing biblical texts. We either decide to just throw the whole thing out, religion and all, or we come to a healthy agreement that the Bible, or at least a good deal of it, just cannot be trusted. One of the convictions at the core of the series that we're doing on inclusion is a repentant acknowledgement that the Bible has been used as a tool of exclusion. Rather than ignoring it, though, I want to help us as a community to engage with it, to learn more than just to ignore it, to actually engage with it, to be able to do what's, I think, very important, which is to disarm it. One way to disarm Scripture is what's commonly known by its critics as cherry-picking. Cherry-picking, their critics claim, is an intellectually dishonest approach to reading Scripture. And that's because you're able to take what you like and leave what you don't. And as we've already seen, though, Jesus is guilty of this. But this, this, character, this characterization is partially true. Partially. It's partially true because it acknowledges that there are segments of Scripture that are unacceptable, or at least unacceptable in the ways that they've been used. Rather than calling it cherry-picking, though, I would invite you to call it like I call it, which is avoiding landmines. I'm fully aware how dangerous and violent the image of landmines is, but I use it intentionally, not lightly. 
Cherry picking, see, it assumes that we're picking and choosing based on our preferences. But the image of landmines reminds us that what's at stake is far more costly than our own preferences. Sometimes we're actually dealing with choices, the choices between life and death when we read these passages. When someone quotes a passage of scripture to justify violence against whole segments of humanity, the result can actually be very deadly. My point is that if we're not careful with the way that we read scripture, we'll find that the body of Christ actually loses some of its members. Landmines. I also call this the Thurman method. And I do that after Howard Thurman. Actually, not after Howard Thurman, after his grandmother. So here's a quote from the introduction to Howard Thurman's book. It was called Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a little bit lengthy of a passage, so I'm going to read it for you. He said, During much of my boyhood, I was cared for by my grandmother, who was born a slave and lived in the Civil War, lived until the Civil War on a plantation near Madison, Florida. My regular chore was to do all the reading for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. But two or three times a week, I read the Bible aloud to her, and I was deeply impressed by the fact that she, wasn't, she, that she was more particular about the choice of Scripture than anyone I have seen. For instance, I might read many of the more devotional psalms, some of Isaiah, the Gospels again and again, but the Pauline epistles, never except at long intervals, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. My curiosity knew no bounds, but no one questioned my grandmother. When I was older and I was half through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of summer vacation, and I had this feeling of great temerity when I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. And what she told me I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he wouldn't let a Negro minister preach it to his slaves. Always the white minister used the text something from Paul. And at least three or four times a year, he used as the text, Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. And I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. Thurman's grandmother wasn't just picking and choosing what she liked and didn't like. She was practicing spiritual safety. She didn't need to go through seminary or get an advanced degree in biblical interpretation to learn how to argue the correct interpretation of these passages. She only knew that in order to safeguard her relationship to her maker, she had to promise not to read that part of the Bible. In her case, too much violence had been done in God's name to merely let the Bible just say anything. It was clear that Mrs. Thurman loved the Bible. But she knew that rather than hearing what the Bible says, it was better just to leave portions of the portions of the violent. She it was better just to let portions of the Bible remain silent. Kwok Pilon, in her book on the imagination of God in a post-colonial context, she tells a similar story about an earlier 20th century Chinese woman who could barely read. It's very similar, the story, even though she. 
Even though she couldn't read, she used a pen to cut from her Bible verses where Paul instructed women to be submissive and remain silent in the church. Puilan's argument is that by discovering their own sense of interpretive agency, oppressed women have learned to rescue the Bible from the hands of colonial officials, from the missionaries, from the educators who misused it. Instead, these faithful women have turned these problematic portions of the Bible into a site of contestation and resistance for their own freedom. In other words, when the Bible was turned into a tool to justify violence, faithfulness to God might require actually removing landmines, even if that means contesting and resisting portions of it. The Bible says, that's an interesting phrase, There is, however, another way, not just cherry-picking or removing landmines, but another way for people to respond, people of faith to respond to the phrase, the Bible says. And to get at it, I want to help us practice an experiment that I've seen done a number of times, and I've learned from a number of faithful biblical scholars before me. My guess is that the same thing will happen now as has happened before. If you're ready, here we go. Look at the Bible there in the center of the room. All right, now, listen. Norm, you can put your ears close to it if you need. And can we focus our ears enough beyond the other noises? It's pretty quiet in here. Tune out the other voices in our head. It's open, so let's listen for a minute and hear what it has to say. I hear the birds. Okay, so now, if my prediction is correct, we've all just experienced an important collective truth that we should name. The Bible doesn't actually say anything. The Bible doesn't speak. Now, I know what you're thinking. What we mean when we say the Bible says is that when someone looks at that black ink on those white pages of that book, they're able to come to a particular meaning and that everyone should be able to read it and agree. But my point is that the Bible actually isn't doing that work. You are. The reader is always the one that does the work, never the Bible. See, reading is always an act of interpretation. And if only a few of us read it, then we ascribe too much authority to what the Bible says, and then reading the Bible actually becomes a political act. We give too much authority to people who say that they know what it says. There's a Quaker saying that I would love it if, as a congregation, we would make our own. It's up to you whether you decide to do that or not. But this is what it says. The water always tastes of the pipes. The Bible, see, doesn't say anything. Readers who read the Bible say things, right? And some of us read with more intention than others. Some of us don't read it at all. But see, the Bible doesn't do the work we do. So the next time when someone says to you, the Bible says, I hope you won't fall into the trap of saying, yeah, but the Bible also says. Instead of getting into that Bible says, Bible says argument, I hope that you can just move to a place where you can say, when I read the Bible, I interpret it to mean this. Then you're rightly putting the agency on you, on ourselves, rather than using the Bible or God as a placeholder to authorize your own opinions. So as we go forward in our study over the rest of the summer, I'm going to be making certain assertions. I'm going to tell you that there's no word in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek for homosexual or homosexuality. 
And of course, there couldn't have been since these words weren't invented until the 19th century. But see, it was then when psychoanalysts invented the term because they began to discover and understand the diversity of human sexuality. But I'm going to be showing you where some of the landmines are where people have claimed the Bible is talking about something that we know it's not. And I'm hoping that you will be able to reread some of those passages on your own. But in the end, I think the most important thing that I will ever say to you about the Bible is that the Bible only says what people interpret it to say. That's why it's so important that you actually read it for yourself. Don't take what I say for granted. It's your Bible, not mine. It's our Bible. When the Bible is turned into a tool to justify violence, faithfulness to God requires that we reread it. At times, we may need to contest it, even resist portions of it. At our own spiritual, and if our own spiritual safety is at stake, or the spiritual safety of others that we love is at stake, it might actually be more faithful to respond by saying, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything. And that's why in our tradition, we have that famous habit of saying that God still speaks. Because God speaks to us. So my prayer for us this morning is that we become a people who don't just know what the Bible says or doesn't say, but that we become a people who are willing to hear the voice of God still speak to us about how to love each other. That's what I think all of us should be trying to use the Bible to do. When it doesn't do that, maybe just let it be silent. In the name of our God who still speaks, amen.